FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm very glad to have you here today. Um, although we come to you again today, I think with heavy hearts, uh, which are shared by people across Georgia and the United States, as we have once again watched an incident in which a white police officer shot and killed an African-American man, this time in the city of Atlanta. We're going to talk about just what happened. The more important talk, I mean, like, let me not say more important, because nothing's more important than the death of, of uh, Rayshard Brooks. But in that context, the larger question, which of course is um, police violence and the cries for reform of police departments across the country. Um, we've got a very strong panel to talk about that today, starting with Dr. Andra Gillespie, uh, we, we, Andra, of course, has been a longtime panelist on this show, and I know one of your favorites. And uh, we always introduce Andra as a professor of political science at Emory University, which is, of course, absolutely correct. Um, but we should add to that uh, the fact that she is the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. And Andra, I think that's especially an important descriptor to use as we begin the conversation today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, we're also joined by Ernie Suggs. Ernie has spent more than 20 years as a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ernie has uh, focused, among other things, on uh, race relations and culture. And uh, Ernie, uh, you have been particularly involved over the past couple of months in watching the demonstrations that unfolded across Metro Atlanta uh, after the George Floyd uh, shooting in Minneapolis. And so I'm glad to have you here today, Ernie, to get your perspective on what we're seeing now in Atlanta. Ernie, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. It's been a very uh, busy couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, uh, terribly <laughs> busy. Um, we also have with us Dr. Kofi Smith. Dr. Smith is um, the uh, CEO of the Atlanta Airlines Terminal Company, uh, which uh, oversees the functioning of uh, some 7.2 million square feet of terminal facilities at Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. Uh, he's a graduate of Georgia Tech, played football there, uh, went on and played arena football uh, for a while before stepping into this much larger role as a corporate executive. He's been honored frequently. Uh, the Atlanta Business Chronicle chose him as one of the outstanding executives just a couple of years back. He's uh, been a member of Leadership Atlanta, an important organization for cultivating leadership. And, and uh, uh, Kofi, many other honors that we could talk about. You are not here today uh, in your role as the CEO at AATC. You're here because of a very powerful op-ed piece uh, that you published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution yesterday. And, and as soon as I saw it, I had to call you and ask you to come on. So thank you so much for being here. We want to talk about your opinion piece in just a little while. But in the meantime, thank you for being with us. Bill, thank you so much for having me. Um, all right. Let's I, I want everybody certainly uh, take part in this conversation. But I think, Ernie, why don't we I do think we should start. Uh, everybody by now, I think, knows a, a lot about what happened Friday night around 10, sometime between about 1045 and midnight uh, in the city of Atlanta. Uh, but, but just to go over it, Ernie, uh, fairly briefly, um, mm -hmm. and then talk about the consequences of it. Um, Rayshard yeah. Brooks, 27-year-old African-American was sleeping in his car in a drive through lane at Wendy's. The, uh, the lines backed up. Police were called. And uh, initially, uh, an officer, Devin Brosnan, was the first to arrive and uh, woke 
uh, Rayshard Brooks up and tried to get him to get out of his car. And Ernie, what happened from there? Well, the uh, the officers and Mr. Brooks, and thank you for, again for having me. The officers and Mr. Brooks got into well, actually, they you know they talked for a while, but then they got into a scuffle. Uh, a taser was deployed by one of the police officers, and there was a continued struggle. And uh, Mr. Brooks kind of got away, but he got away with the taser. And, and as he's running through the Wendy's parking lot with a car, like you said, he was in a, he was in the drive-through. So there was a line of cars, a line of people watching this unfold. And uh, he turned around um, as if to uh, witnesses say he was as if to, he was pointing the taser at the officers, and the officers shot him twice in the back. The autopsy report from the Fulton County ME says that he died from two gunshot wounds to the back. Now this comes, you know against the backdrop of what's happening nationally, what happened with, uh, with with Mr. Floyd and what happened with all the protests all, all over the country. And, you know, ironically, with Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms being kind of in the middle of this, being kind of in the, being kind of one of the focal national focal points for all of this in terms of unarmed black men being shot and killed by police officers for this to happen in Atlanta. Um, you know, as a journalist, you always kind of expect things to happen in your town. You're not surprised when things happen in your town. But I think with this happening in Atlanta, with the backdrop of what's going on nationally, um, makes it even a bigger story. And, you know, considering the fact that the mayor acted quickly in um, getting rid of the police officer and the police chief resigning adds to the whole narrative about what's going on here in the city of Atlanta. So it was a very tough weekend. And, of course, you know, there were protests. And, of course, you know, the Wendy's was set on fire symbolically or, you know, as, a, as an outlet for, um, for relieving, you know, as, as an outlet for the people who actually did it uh, to voice that frustration. So it was a very tense week in the city of Atlanta. And I, and I fear that these things are going to continue to happen through November, probably through the election. Whenever there is an incident like this, wherever it is in the country, this, this event is going to continue to happen. Let's just hope it doesn't happen in Atlanta anymore. Or anytime soon. Uh, Andro, um, there were several chilling aspects of this uh, in terms of the videos uh, that we've seen since then. Um, one of them was that uh, we know that uh, that Rayshard Brooks and the first officer on the scene had about a 27-minute rather, rather cordial conversation um, before the incident that led to his shooting. Um, and, and just to watch at least the excerpts from that video and to understand what was going to happen next makes this so much more chilling, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, in preparation for today's show, I actually uh, spoke with a cousin of mine who's a police officer in western New York and to try to get his take on what was going on. And he told me a lot. It was actually a really, really helpful conversation. Um, and so um, I, I went to him in part because a few years ago we'd had a conversation about how he'd want a commendation for de-escalating a situation where um, he was able to, without having to pull out his gun, um, uh, detain an, an armed robber who, uh, or who kidnapped his grandparents to force them to withdraw money from an ATM. And so I remembered about four years ago when we had this conversation, or three years ago, um, that he said other cops would have probably, like, pulled their gun first, but, like, you know, I was able to kind of talk him down and was able to apprehend him without having to go there. And so one of the, a couple of the things that I think stood out for this conversation were, one, he said, you lay hands on people as a last resort. And so, you know, this is, could be a question of basically going from zero to 100 um, and you without stopping at any of the intermediary points. The other thing that he pointed out is in terms of this case, one, you know, there, there were grounds to – to, to arrest Richard uh, 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 Brooks for, you know, being drunk behind the wheel of a car. So he wasn't disputing that. But just because you can arrest doesn't mean that you don't have discretion to try to use other means to try to address the situation. And so he said in this situation, had it been him, and he disagreed with some of his colleagues about this, um, he would have probably tried to get him um, a ride home and would have given him the benefit of the doubt for kind of being parked at the time that he found him, so that he wasn't actually operating the vehicle at the time that this happened. And so this is one of those situations where cops weren't using um, discretion and common sense to try to sort of have a safe outcome for everybody. The other thing that he said was just the length of time was long, and that actually probably served to agitate Brooks 
So if you've been talking to him for a half an hour before things really start to escalate, he's like, look, this thing should have taken 10 minutes. Tops. But the only reason it should be longer is if he can't find his, if he can't find his, his driver's license. And so the longer it goes on, the longer Brooks may have thought he was going to get off with a warning. And so then all of a sudden, if you flip the script and you start to arrest him, then that is going to unnecessarily agitate him. And so he said that he usually tries to be really transparent. So if he thinks this is going to end an arrest, he's going to try to tell you up front, look, this doesn't look good, but I need to kind of like go through all of this process. But he wants to try to foreshadow or give somebody a heads up. Yeah, you're probably going to end up locked up behind this. And the fact that he didn't see that um, in this tape suggests that there were all kinds of things and mistakes that these officers made that led to Richard Brooks being dead today. Kofi, um, one of the things that was uh, especially disturbing, I think, to uh, many people was the release of the autopsy report which showed that, in fact, Brooks was, was in fact, uh, killed by two shots, two of three shots uh, in, in the back. Uh, so he was, we, we do see a video, Kofi, where he does sort of, as he's running away from the two officers, he does turn his body toward them. He appears to be shooting off his taser in a kind of a reckless manner, for sure, uh, but apparently then turned again to run, and it was then that he, uh, took two shots in the back, which killed him. And, and I think any time we see that a suspect in whatever kind of crime they wanted to charge him with is shot in the back by police, it raises even more questions, Kofi. Yeah, I'll, you know, it, it's just unfortunate. You, this is another case uh, that we've seen before where uh, a black male is fleeing from the police and is, is, and is shot down. Um, he didn't pose any harm to the police. Uh, we know that one of the things that uh, police are, as we just heard, are charged with is de-escalating a situation. And I think right now, if um, any African-American male or female or person of color is stopped by a police or engaged with a police officer, be it black or white, but especially a white police officer, it is even more incumbent upon that police officer to start with the notion that this individual right now is terrified of me. The situation that's going on in our country, you walk into an interaction with the police as a person of color terrified because you do not know what is going to happen in those next moments or those next minutes of your interaction with an officer. So it is incumbent upon our white officers to understand that the situation is already set from the very beginning to escalate. And they should be thinking the whole entire time of de-escalation, doing whatever they can to bring calm and peace, letting us know that their intentions are not to harm us. Their intention is not to kill us. Their intention is to just try to figure out what is going on and as quick as possible, resolve it. Because I can tell you as an African-American male, if I'm having to stand outside, I, I know that I've already done something that is gonna be seen as illegal. I've been drinking, I fell asleep in my car, and now um, the cops have shown up. In my head, I know I'm guilty. And now officers ask me to step out of the car, and the longer we stand there and communicate, as it was mentioned, the longer the potential is for something to go sideways. It's just it does, the atmosphere is already set, charged in Atlanta right now across our nation, and we need for white officers to understand that and approach, approach the uh, situation with an incredible amount of sensitivity. I mean, my cousin said the exact same thing. So he's a lieutenant. So he has officers who he supervises. And he says he reminds his officers all the time that we are in really tense times. And the burden of proof is on them as officers to try to de-escalate the situation and to try to take the high ground and to not try to make things worse by trying to play big and bad. But one of the things that was actually interesting in terms of the dispute that I think my cousin had with his colleagues about whether or not this was a good shoot 
is that those who thought that it was a good shoot thought that because uh, Brooks did point the taser towards uh, the officer and pointed it towards his head, that that would then kind of put you sort of, you know, would justify him shooting back. And then I think a couple of things that kind of speak against that. So first, it's the fact that they knew it was a taser. Um, and so you knew it wasn't a gun. He had been switched already. So you knew that that couldn't kill you, even though putting it in your face is actually m- much more dangerous. And I think perhaps increases the potential lethality, but don't quote me on that. But the other thing that my cousin pointed out that was so interesting was he said, one, tasers become less effective and less accurate beyond seven feet. So the fact that he was running away and pointing the taser actually probably made that uh, potentially less dangerous because it probably wasn't going to do that. The other thing, especially given the fact that he was drunk, the idea that he was aiming for his head is also something my cousin was like, that's problematic. Like he's just kind of waving it around in the general direction. And he is not physically sort of in a capable position of actually being able to aim because his reflexes are down because of the inebriation. So he was like, for all of those reasons, you know, you still have the upper hand in the situation. You don't need to resort to deadly force in that situation. Um, Ernie, let me jump in and then ask you, I want to play a soundbite and then have you uh, respond. Um, As we know, uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, acted very, very quickly uh, in the aftermath of learning about this shooting. Um, She uh, immediately uh, went before news cameras to say that she was firing uh, Officer Garrett Rolfe, who actually fired the shots. Let's listen to what she has to say, and then, Ernie, I'd love to have you talk about it. While there may be debate as to whether this was an appropriate use of deadly force, I firmly believe that there is a clear distinction between what you can do and what you should do. I do not believe that this was a justified use of deadly force and have called for the immediate termination of the officer. Ernie, that uh, is exactly what we just heard Kofi Smith and uh, Andre Gillespie essentially say. Your turn, Ernie. Yeah, basically what the mayor is doing is she's doing this in the backdrop, as I mentioned earlier, of what's going on nationally. As as your listeners will recall, a couple weeks ago, uh, two officers were immediately fired for uh, tasing two college students um, during a during a stop during the um, the, during the initial rounds of protests. So at this point, you know, with the national with the national spotlight here on Atlanta, with with the mayor being a national figure who's becoming a national figure who's who's looked at as an expert on these things now, uh, following the George Floyd shootings, she is in a position where she has to act quickly to, you know, to, to, to let people know that she's on top of this and to let people know that Atlanta is going to not tolerate, you know, the unjust or what, what she considers the unjust shooting of innocent or not innocent men, but of unarmed black men. And so she was quick to fire those two police officers in the tasing incident. She was quick to fire the officer uh, in the shooting incident this week. And she was quick to accept the resignation of police chief uh, Erica Shields. And Erica Shields over the last couple of weeks has, you know, has been a, somewhat polarizing figure in some in some aspects in some circles in the city for those who are protesting as as has Keisha Lance Bottoms been a somewhat of a polarizing figure to some people so I think it's important for her to kind of act quickly and 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 to kind of let the chips fall where they may in the aftermath of it. as you know those officers who she fired on the first incident have sued the have sued the department and I think that's something that she cares about less or she's worried about down the road but that's initially she needs to be very decisive in her decision-making and firing these officers and accepting a resignation of, of, of Chief Shields was her first instinct to do. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about at all since uh, the George Floyd incident particularly is the role of police unions uh, in this sort of incident. And uh, I've gotten notes from several listeners saying, why don't you talk about how police unions tend to stop the process uh, that can lead to the dismissal of a bad cop, as they say. And in fact, uh, the uh, union representative for the Atlanta Police Union, Ken Allen, defended Rolf over the weekend, saying that he had followed his training to the letter. He said, you don't let a suspect just run away once you've been engaged in a use of force. Uh, and, and, and Kofi, that is an issue 
that we don't have to take up in detail on this show now, but it's one that certainly is going to need to be addressed, Kofi, as people talk about police reform in the the months ahead. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, you know, I think the conversation has uh, has eventually will eventually get to and it has to get to uh, the, the systematic issue and systemic issue that is plaguing our police force as it pertains to their in a, their interaction with African-Americans and people of color. The unions take a part in that the whole construct of the police force and where that came from as um, as it relates to uh, recapturing of slaves. I mean, this thing has a long history and we need to really look at the entire construct of the police force and take it apart and, and put it back together in order to get to a system that is truly meant to protect and to serve the public, meaning all of us, no matter what your color, no matter what your race, ethnicity is. So I, I think unions are going to play a huge role in that conversation uh, for sure. But the overall construct needs to be broken apart and put back together. But if, if I could be just very quickly quick at this in terms of, you know, the use of deadly force, particularly against uh, Mr. Brooks, you know, he was talking to the police officers for a half hour. So they knew who he was. They have his information. Uh, they had his car. So, you know, if they had let Mr. Brooks go, he would be in jail right now because they would have known who he is and they would have been able to find him. So the, the fact that they're shooting a man in the back who's running away becomes a difficult argument to justify considering all the information that you had as well as having his property in your possession. So, you know, that's kind of going to be a very difficult kind of bridge or bridge for them to cross in terms well, of justifying I mean, what happened. Andrew, let me... Well, you know, this is a question that I would ask, you know, uh, probably the Brooks family lawyers, but in, in watching the tape, my cousin pointed out, and I have to admit the parts of the tape that I've seen didn't cover this part of the conversation. Um, the fact that they held him for half an hour, this is, this, is, this, is, this is coming from my cousin, that they held him for a half an hour and it didn't look like they had read him his rights. He said he argued that this was actually a potential for entrapment. Right, that they kept on asking him questions to see if he would self-incriminate. This is also part of the reason why you don't drag this stuff out longer, and that that's actually further escalating the situation as opposed to de-escalating the situation. So, you know, I mean, if the union wants to kind of defend their own, I agree that a union reform needs to be addressed as we talk about police reform. But if like people are doing things that lawyers can throw out of court, then that's something that would suggest that procedures weren't followed correctly. All right, I've got to get to our first break of the show. I, I said in introducing Kofi Smith that his uh, essay, his op-ed piece in yesterday's AJC, was one of the most deeply moving pieces I've read uh, in response to what we've been seeing happening in this country in recent months um, and going back long before that. And I want to talk about that with all three of you when we return uh, from this break. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Um, a quick note before we continue our conversation. Uh, I think most of you who listen to GPB radio pretty extensively know that we're in the middle of our spring pledge drive right now. It's coming very, very late, two months later than it was supposed to. Uh, and our fiscal year is going to end in a couple of weeks. And uh, so we're looking for as much support as we can possibly get from you. That said, uh, we recognize that today, this topic today is so important. This conversation about what happened in Atlanta over the weekend is so crucial that we just couldn't do our usual pledge break show for you today. We had to have the full hour to talk about uh, the incident. Um, and and so um, I'm asking you, if you already support uh, GPB Radio, if you support Political Rewind, which so many of you tell me you do, thank you very much. If you don't... Um, Please 
Go to gpb.org, uh, the homepage. You'll see a, a, a link that'll take you right to a place where you can contribute to us. Uh, we really do need your support. Um, and, and also, I think I, I'd like you to help us just as a way of saying thanks to the management team at GPB, which recognizes how important this conversation is today. And they t- told me, please take the whole hour. We won't interrupt your show. So that's all I'll say about this today. Um, all right, Kofi Smith, um, I introduced you and gave all of your credentials in part because you should have your credentials mentioned, but also because I think it's important for people who aren't aware of you to understand what a significant uh, business leader you've been in this community for a long time, which I think makes the op-ed piece that was published in yesterday's AJC even more important. And what is ironic and chilling about your piece is that the AJC opinion page went to bed a couple of days before Rashad, Richard Brooks was killed by a white police officer, only adding to the impact of your words. You already said it's okay with you if I read just a couple of sentences from what you wrote, and then it's up to you to tell, flesh this out a bit. You said this, when George Floyd took his last breath, it felt as though the final breath of hope was expelled from my body. My soul is broken, my spirit depleted, and I can't breathe. For years, I have been suffocating under the crushing weight of white people's complicity while desperately gasping for air every time white people allow other white people to take the life of someone whose skin is the same color as mine and my three sons. The only persons who can help me breathe again are those whose skin is different than mine. So white people give me back my breath and provide me some hope. I need you. Kofi Smith, talk about that. And talk about, to the extent that it took it, some of the courage. You know there are people out there who are going to push back on this. Yeah, <clears throat> Bill, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you again for having me, and thank you for calling on yesterday. And I'll tell you, um, on the 25th of May, when George Floyd lost his life and you had Amy Cooper um, call the police on Christian Cooper. On that Monday, it was a short week, of course, uh, because of Memorial Day, but on that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was impacted. I was impacted just as many blacks um, were, but I wasn't affected. And it, and it was, and I didn't understand why I wasn't affected um, until Friday. Until that Friday, uh, May 29th, um, I left the airport. I came home uh, from the office. I went for a two-mile run. And when I came back to my home, everything just hit me. And I fell into the darkest place, uh, the lowest place that I've been uh, for 44 years of living as it pertained to me being an African-American male, well-educated, successful, and blessed, but yet I did not know where I fit into this country as a man with that profile. And on that day, uh, the 29th, I just lost all hope. Uh, I lost all hope. And I'm an optimistic person. Um, It is by virtue of my position and title as president and CEO, uh, I am endowed to always be the force that is looking for a way out and to be positive for my organization and those that God has placed up under my leadership. But on that day, I lost all hope. And I, and I couldn't, I didn't understand it. I couldn't process it. I didn't understand um, that. I, I honestly didn't understand all the feelings and emotions that I was having. So on that next day, uh, Saturday, I just started writing and I, and I started writing um, one to just really get, out of me and try to understand what was happening on the inside of me and to put it on paper. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the reason I started writing because I was just trying to find my way out of this black hole. It took me a week um, to pour all these feelings out on paper. And then once I finally got it on paper, I decided to publish it on LinkedIn. And when I published it on LinkedIn, that was really step two for me to lift this burden, this heavy burden that had been placed on me um, to get it off of me. And and what I mean by that is as soon as I push publish, now all of my words, all of my feelings were on paper, but it was not just for me to see. It was for the world to see. 
And at that moment, I felt like I've spoken. And that was the burden that was, um, that was, that was heavy on me. Now, I could tell you the, um, the reason why I said I was impacted on the, um, on the 25th and up to the 29th, but, uh, but truly, truly affected is because from the 25th to the 29th, and I just realized this last week on why I had entered this dark place, is because everything that had happened to George Floyd, that was not a surprise, and that, that's not foreign. As African-Americans, we've seen that time and time again of an unarmed African-American life being taken by a police officer. We, we've seen that. The difference is that um, between that Monday and that Friday, no one within my circle of friends, white specifically, called to reach out to me and to check on me. That was okay because I understand um, that uh, white people are having a very hard time understanding what to say um, and, and not wanting to say the wrong thing and, and are challenged with their, their own emotions around what they witnessed. So that was okay, but coupled with that is that all the white people that I was interacting with on a day-to-day basis in the office or via um, um, video conference calls, um, no one asked or acknowledged what happened. No one asked, how are you doing? How are you coping? Are you okay? No one acknowledged what happened, and whites were treating as was treating the situation as business as usual. And I know that wasn't their intention, but the fact that um, I went a whole entire week without anyone acknowledging that I, as an African-American male, just witnessed another unarmed African-American male lose his life to the hands of those that should be protecting us. No one acknowledged it. That's what happened. In hindsight, um, that's the reason why uh, I now believe I fell into this deep, deep place of, um, of hurt and pain. So to your, um, to your reading of my article, uh, that suffocating under the crushing weight of white's complicity, um, me watching all of those whites that, um, that had the power, that had the influence, that had the privilege to interact and engage and change what is happening but yet continue to stay silent, continue to sit on the sideline. It, it, I, I, I was at a place where I, I no longer had any hope. I literally, I could not breathe anymore, and all hope was left. So you know, that's kind of, that, that kind of brings us to where we are today. Thank you for your candor. Um, Ernie, here, I thought about you uh, when I read Kofi Smith's uh, piece, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because a couple of weeks ago, uh, in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, when Atlanta erupted with protests and, and, and some uh, destruction of property, uh, isolated uh, compared to the many peaceful demonstrators, you wrote a piece about the so-called Atlanta Way, the city that is essentially too busy to hate, where blacks and whites have always worked together, uh, have found ways because business is what matters most here. And Kofi, here's Kofi Smith, Ernie a man who's had enormous success in the business world, who is part of the Leadership Atlanta class of a few years ago, an organization which is dedicated to trying to resolve uh, uh, racial disparities, figure out how blacks and whites can be leaders together. And so I thought about you and the piece you wrote on the Atlanta Way, and I'm wondering how you reflect upon that, having read Kofi Smith's uh, op-ed uh, and and what you think about how we're going to move forward, and what your opinion, and then I need to get Andre in here too. Well, that story about the Atlanta Way talked about how Atlanta has always traditionally considered itself too busy to hate, and considered itself a city in which uh, black and white leaders can sit down and and discuss things <laughs> without the problems that happened in the 1950s in places like Little Rock and Birmingham. But what Kofi, well, I'm sorry, what Dr. Smith also talks about is what overrides all of that is just that generational trauma that African-Americans and particularly black men have always seen and exist in all of us. You know, watching that video of Mr. Floyd's getting, Mr. Floyd getting stopped and then subsequently how it escalates and gets, and he dies. That's something that Ms. Dr. Smith and I look at and we see ourselves in that position. 
Uh, a couple weeks ago, someone asked me had I watched the Ahmad Aubrey shooting, and I had refused to watch it because I did not want to uh, get wrapped up in that drama and that trauma. But at the same time, when the George Floyd tapes came out, I couldn't help but watch it. I watched another one yesterday. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's been out, but I watched another one yesterday where two people are on the sidelines, where a black man is on the sidelines, continuously saying that you are killing this man. You are killing that man. He cannot breathe. And this, I think it, this is probably the eight-minute version of this, but watching this and listening to that man tell this police officer who is sitting there so passively, so, and, I, and I say passively because he has no expression on his face, just has his knee on this man's neck, killing him was such a stark indication of what we have been going through, what Dr. Smith and I have been going through, him for 44 years, me for 50 years, and for this generation for 401 years. So the, the Atlanta way that we talk about is always superseded by how we feel about race and how this trauma, you know, when he said, when Dr. Smith says that none of his white friends reached out to them, reached out to him to see how he's feeling, because this is something that everyone doesn't necessarily see that's happening within us. They don't see how this is affecting us, how it's impacting us. It's just another day, another man who, you know, and you've seen it all. You know, he should not have he should not have struggled. You know, he should not have been walking in the middle of the street like those two kids in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who were arrested. So it's always he should not have been doing something. And when this happens enough, you see the results of it. Um, I mean, and I would just say, please don't leave women out in this as well. Like Brianna Taylor, Brianna Taylor's gender sure. didn't save her. Sandra Bland's gender didn't save her. And I remember distinctly after Sandra Bland died, uh, sort of very early in that next school year, um, my uh, tail, uh, my headlight went out in my car, and I knew I was driving a relative around, and I remember dropping her off, and I knew I had to go back to work. There was an Emory event that night, and you know I don't live that far from Emory, and I was like. I have about 90 minutes. I think I'm going directly to my uh, to my mechanic to get this thing fixed because I can't chance getting pulled over, um, you know, for a, for for a missing headlight, like, and have something go left like immediately. So these are, are things, you know. The other thing that I, I will say, and so my dad already knows what I'm getting, what I gave him for Father's Day. Um, you know, my father has walked outside wearing a bandana for a mask. Uh, with COVID, and I was like, yeah, that's not good for a black man. So I actually made him masks that I think look more mask-like um, because I'm just like, you know, the fact that he is almost 70 does not mean that he will not be subjected to racial violence. We have seen people over 50 <laughs> die at the hands of police, get harassed because of their race. So the idea that you are threatening no matter how old you are, you can be as young as Tamir Rice or you know, you could be as old as, as Christian Cooper. Like, these are things that we think about as, at a daily basis, and people are tired of having to think about these things. And that is why you see the outcry. And I think particularly for young people, they have spent most of their cognizant life aware of Black people who have died at the hands of police or vigilantes who are walking free today. And there's just a frustration of no more. Like, this can't stand. This is not what we were told America was. And so in their own way, they are holding America to the ideals that we allegedly have. Uh, Kofi Smith, another um, paragraph of the piece that you wrote that I'd love for you to uh, address. You said, let's be clear, this is not a message from an angry black man. Long ago, I released myself from the prison of anger and frustration that held me captive due to white people's lack of regard, respect, and care for black people, our children, our lives, and our freedoms, but I am exhausted and disappointed. How many more times must we, as people of color, scream out, we can't breathe before white people decide to stop choking the life out of us? And then you go on to say that one of the most difficult aspects of this, and, and we hear this, of course, we hear it from Andra talking about her father, we heard from other African Americans talking about their children. You go on to talk about having to deal with these situations with your seven-year-old child, for example. Yeah, you know, I um, <clears throat> about uh, four months ago, I got stopped, um, and I had my I had my son, my seven year old, in the car with me, um, downtown Midtown. Um, I was actually headed to the library um, uh, down uh, in Midtown for my son to um, have some additional studies, 
with a tutor on Saturday. And this was about five months ago. And um, I got, uh, I, 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 I um, did a California roll through a stop sign that I didn't realize was there. And as soon as I, as soon as I made this right, um, blue lights came behind me. And I had seen the, the cop car out my periphery when I had made the turn. I just didn't recognize the, the stop sign. So uh, as soon as the blue lights came behind me, I pulled over, and I immediately started praying. I immediately started praying and, and almost pleading to God, please don't let this man be white. Please do not let this cop be white. What I did not want to happen, and all black people and co people of color, we suffer with this, that the fact that blue lights come behind me and I have my son in the car, I did not want there to be a situation that either one, my son has to witness the emasculation of his black father at the hands of a white man, or two, and worse, that this white officer kills me or brutally hurts me as my son sits and witnesses it. That's a very, very hard place to be as an African-American male, especially because we are men. It is also hard for our women to be put in that situation in front of our children. So uh, when I say I'm not an angry black man, um, I'm not, right? I mean, the anger that's – and I understand our people right now. I understand the anger. I understand the rage um, that we have, and we have a – there is a, um, a, a huge array of emotions that we're going through. You can speak to one African-American, and they'll tell you that they're terrified. They're scared. Uh, for themselves, but more importantly for their children, to walk out of the house as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 16, 18-year-old child of theirs. They are terrified. Or you can talk to other blacks that are infuriated, right? I mean, and, 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 and have nothing but rage on the inside of them. All of these emotions are justified, and I went through those same. Um, but years ago, <clears throat> the anger subsided. And the frustration for me subsided, and it really got to a point for me where I was just exhausted, and I'm exhausted. Like, I have been worn out, um, and I'm very disappointed. I'm very disappointed that whites continue to allow this to happen. And I understand, and let me just say this, that I, I believe the majority of whites <clears throat> that are in this United States, the majority of whites are good-hearted people, as I mentioned in my op-ed. Uh, they're beautiful people. Um, but the minority of whites who feel very differently towards black lives are in power, and we need the majority of those whites who disagree with it to help us. All right. Um, let me do this. I do have to get one final break in the, in the show uh, done right now. Uh, so let's get to that, and when we come back, uh, we'll have more with our panel. This is Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The AJC's Ernie Suggs, uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, and uh, uh, Dr. Kofi Smith join me uh, for Political Rewind today. So, um, uh, Kofi Smith, let me start with you and then everybody jump in, please. You, you just opened my eyes to, to something that I hadn't done myself. Uh, it didn't occur to me over the last couple weeks that I should call uh, the African Americans who are in my circle who are friends. It, it didn't seem to me that my voice would matter because I feel sort of powerless and ineffective in figuring out what are my words of consolation going to mean. So for you to say that, 
that it hurt you that you didn't get calls from the people in you, the white people in your circle, really shook me up a little bit just now. So maybe the, the next thing for all three of you to address is um, what can we do next? How do we make things, how do we start to make a difference? And, and Dr. Smith, let me start with you and, and then Andre and Ernie, please weigh in. You know, I would tell you, Bill, that uh, uh, it is, in, in, in my opinion, I don't, and I do not speak for all um, people of color, but I, what I needed, what Kofi needed was for white people to get into this dark place with me and hold my hand and help walk me out of it. Here's what I mean by that, is that when I fell into this dark place, it was, uh, I was very much alone. Not to discount that so many other people of color were going through the exact same thing that I was going through, but we've always been together in this struggle. I felt alone where I did not have my white colleagues, my white brothers and sisters in this dark place with me. And the way they enter into this dark place with me is by um, almost having the pain be self-inflicted. And what I mean by that is psychologically when you come and you apologize and you take responsibility for what your people are doing to mine, when you look at the situation and say that you are ashamed that this is happening, when you look at the situation and you take responsibility for the fact that you as an individual have not done enough you now self-impose some hurt, and it brings you to a dark place, and now you're in that place with me. And I can assure you, Bill, that if you call your black colleagues and black friends and do as you did with me on Sunday, it will start to bring breath and air back to their lungs and I'm so very grateful and thankful for all of my white friends after reading my article. And one, uh, Kim, who called me um, before the article even came out and just checked on me, it's literally pushing air back into my lungs, understanding that you're with me. So, I mean, I think we've been kind of talking around sort of notions of allyship or what um, uh, my colleague Bettina Love at the UGA would kind of call co-conspiratorship. And so I think that that's what we see kernels of now, but it needs to be more fully developed. And so the difference between allyship, which a lot of people kind of have problems with the terminology and co-conspiratorship is when um, people who are in the position of allies actually put their bodies and their privileges on the line in order to help things. And so I think it, it's difficult to have this conversation without people talking about what unfair privileges are people willing to give up who have them in order to make things more equitable. And so, you know, we could have sort of, you know, racial harmony sort of on the cheap where people send out nice platitudes, but then they don't seek to um, address some of the systemic and institutional problems that actually help to perpetuate these things. So if you see that, um, you know, you're being able to have certain types of goods and services comes at the expense of other people, would you be willing to give that up in order to make things a little bit more equitable? Um, you know, so it can be like simple things like, you know, we need to go grocery shopping. Nobody wants to take that away from them. But if you're not willing to pay extra to pay frontline workers more money or to put in, you know, plexiglass to protect them, then that's not fair. Right. And so then how do we address those kinds of issues? So those are the conversations that I've had. You know, I've, it's been really interesting to see my inbox fill up with all kinds of statements from lots of different people. Um, and some of them I welcome. And then some of them I roll my eyes at because I'm like, well, you're not going to change the culture of your organization. And if you're not changing the culture of your organization, I actually really wish you keep your mouth shut about Black Lives Matter because you have nothing to say. So until there's a self-examination of practices that seek to uh, promote inequality or that seek to kind of continually keep the people who always sort of have in positions of excess and in positions of having more power than other people, then I don't know if we're actually ready to have that conversation. I think there are a lot of people who are in that reflective mode where they're actually willing to do that. But, you know, I would rather people deal with the microaggressions in their spaces than necessarily like put up, you know, sort of like the black banner on Instagram. Um, that would be more meaningful to me than just kind of saying words and putting pictures out. I, I kind of agree with uh, Andrea. Um, 
I, I'm not looking for people to call me or to let me know how or to, to seek how I'm feeling. And, and, I, and I think that probably, and Bill, you probably understand this a little bit as a journalist. You know, we don't, you know, we, we see, we kind of see these things, although it kind of affects us personally and affects our people personally, we kind of see these things as kind of stories and we're kind of separated from that. So, you know, with what happened to George Floyd and what, what happened to Mr., uh, Mr., Mr. Brooks, you know, in a way, and it's kind of a bad way, I kind of see that as kind of separate. Although it's part of me, it's also kind of separate. So I'm not expecting people to call me and say, hey, I really feel bad about what's going on with the world. Because as a journalist, I'm covering this kind of stuff. And it's kind of, you know, one, you know you're going from one thing to the other. So, but like Andrea said, you know, I think it's more important to see what people are doing systemically to address this as a whole holistically instead of addressing me. So my concern may, mainly is just how we address this overall and how these kind of things stop happening instead of having to address me personally. All right. We are virtually out of time um, for today's show. Uh, but I want to just very quickly give each of you like 20 seconds if, if I can. And let me uh, start with you, Andra. Um, we've got to have a bigger conversation about police reform and about this whole notion of defunding uh, the police. Uh, But that's a scary thought to some people, this notion of defunding. Now, we can't get into a big conversation about it, but just give us a quick reflection on whether you think that conversation can actually go anywhere, given how frightened some people are of this notion of defunding police. Well, I would encourage people to understand that defund the police is a misnomer um, and uh, that you really that it has a range of uh, policy proposals. The more viable ones are about taking money away from public safety and diverting it to social services so that police officers aren't playing social worker, drug counselor, other kinds of things. And so most people on the defund spectrum, there are some people who do want to abolish the police. They're not actually trying to get rid of the police. And even those who want to start over again don't want to be anarchists, and they do want some form of public safety. They just want to reimagine it. And I'll be very quick on this. We are Um, like... Oh, well, defund the police. I think that the whole marketing behind it was wrong. I think the whole defund uh, has let people think that this is something different. So I think it it can work, but I think it needs to be a different approach as to how what it means. I got to stop you. Uh, Ernie Suggs, uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, um, and, and Kofi Smith. Thank you. Kofi Smith, we're going to post the, a link to your op-ed piece. I think everybody who listens to this show ought to read uh, what you have to say. And I'm very grateful to you for being willing to be so candid with us. And thank you all for a, a show that certainly meant a lot to me and I hope to all our listeners as well. We're out of time for today's Political Rewind. Of course, we're back tomorrow uh, with another show. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy.